0: Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we're going to talk about the only way I know of to live a human life. This is a contemplation about healing, wholeness, the challenges of suffering, and the paradoxes of success. In what sense is life a self-healing truth? What's the nature of health and healing? What's the nature of sickness? Both our cultural sickness and our own mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical sicknesses. These are some of the questions that I'd like us to think about together today. Our contemplation riffs on an essay by Darlene Cohen. She called it The only way I know of to alleviate suffering. Now, the path for alleviating suffering that Cohen outlines in her essay is the very path of love wisdom or philosophy. And Cohen seems to have been a skilled philosopher in the sense of someone dedicated to presencing wisdom, love, and beauty, dedicated to working with positive intentions, working with their own life for the benefit of all of us. One of the things I like about this essay is the way Cohen touches on issues that have proven very important in my own work with students and clients who have come to me with a wide range of issues related to physical illness, injury, or pain, as well as other kinds of suffering, like emotional pain, spiritual pain, maybe an urgent need for success in their work. Problems related to past karma that they can't seem to shake free from. Countless other kinds of suffering that are present even in the midst of apparent success. Or that show up in our striving for success when we don't have any obvious physical symptoms. Now often these things are interwoven so that physical symptoms have what we might call emotional and spiritual causes and correlations. So that, you know, something physical manifests altogether with clear spiritual and emotional challenges. But a lot of times these things are pretty subtle and it's hard to notice the way something might appear totally physical and yet it has a deeper cause or a different kind of cause than what we might think. We might think we just have a biological or physical problem and something deeper is going on so that we aren't really going to heal if we only look at the physical dimension. Now, Cohen's essay begins with lines that can feel quite heart-opening. She writes, quote, self-healing is an area I've explored intensely because I have had rheumatoid arthritis, a very painful and crippling disease, for 18 years, End quote. Isn't that something? She'd been dealing with a crippling disease for almost two decades. Maybe some of you have never dealt with chronic pain, but if any of us happen to enjoy an embodiment free from something comparable to rheumatoid arthritis, we should count our blessings. We often forget how many people in the world might dream of being able to have our well-functioning lungs Or our well functioning heart, our well functioning knees, well functioning hands, any part of our body or mind that seems to be functioning in relative health might be the dream of millions of people in this world who don't enjoy that same good functioning. Cohen goes on to sound out a clarion call from a text called the Blue Cliff record. This is a very special book of spiritual common law. Now, just like ordinary common law represents a repository of judicial wisdom that presences the spirit of justice with no need of formal statutes. See how that works? We, we can pass laws and then we can have judges try to uphold those laws, or we can, in some cases, turn toward common law, which is the inherited wisdom of judges weighing out things that have happened and trying to offer their sense of justice, which we then take as the common law with no statute passed. Now, spiritual common law is the same way. It's analogous, I should say. It represents a repository of wisdom, love, and beauty. And by studying cases of spiritual common law in the right way, we ourselves can learn how to presence wisdom, love, and beauty in our daily life. Studying spiritual common law cases in the right way can be transformative, but it usually requires a formal practice. It's a very specific, concrete, on-the-spot kind of contemplation. So just reading about spiritual common law or talking about it doesn't get us all the way there. Nevertheless, contemplating spiritual common law can begin to open our hearts, it can begin to open our minds in important ways. Now, Cohen cites a case in which a great philosopher named Yun-Men says the following, Medicine and sickness mutually correspond. The whole universe is our medicine. What is the self? Like all key questions in spiritual common law, this is a questioning of the human condition. And all humans face this kind of spiritual existential question, whether we like it or not, accept it or not, or even notice it or not. We all face it. Most obviously anyone who has ever suffered and wanted to heal that suffering, which is of course the human condition whatever form the suffering takes when we face suffering and want to heal it we face yun men's question but you know even on a simple level of success and skill which can seem mundane you know there's a spiritual dimension to success and skill that's the point of love wisdom love wisdom is the art of success love wisdom is about skill in living skillful everything but even on a more mundane level of success, success in our career, success in our relationships, skill in dealing with other people, artistic skill, athletic skill, Yun-men's question still plays a central role. It has a place for us. Now, we'll come back to some of those issues, but for now, maybe let's follow the golden thread of Cohen's experience and insights. Although, maybe before we do that, I want to mention that Yun-men, her citing Yun-men, I'm not sure if she knew this, but Yun-men suffered a chronic injury. He, his m- first major spiritual breakthrough, and we use that phrase, so many people use this notion of a spiritual awakening and we can never be sure what it really means, but Yunmen is recognized as one of the most realized philosophical sages in his tradition. This, this is a person very highly regarded for spiritual realization for wisdom for compassion and for living graceful and and a graceful and dignified life and his first major breakthrough came in a moment the stories vary where either his leg or his foot was broken and that injury never never fully healed he, he had a limp the rest of his life according to the to the records so Yun men really understood this was an intimate just like a lot of shamans find that their their greatest skill lies in illnesses that they have undergone and in particular maybe the illness that revealed their shamanic gift that can that's a a common story is that a particular fever or illness reveals the shamanic gift of a young child and they are left with this special capacity to heal just that kind of illness and they can also heal other kinds But I'm just getting at the intimacy. Yunmin is is not speaking abstractly. He's talking about somebody who suffered so intently that he... I'm talking about his spiritual suffering. You know, he experienced the human dilemma of suffering so intently that he passionately sought an answer. And in the process, his own body was broken in a chronic way. Okay, now, back to Cohen's essay she touches on one of the gifts of real suffering. And that is that it heightens awareness. Many times we turn this gift against ourselves. Just our habit, you know, is to brace against that heightened awareness. And there's an irony there, a a spiritual irony, that when we brace against that heightened awareness that suffering brings, we increase the suffering. Our mind adds its ideas and reactiveness to the raw experience. And an awakening pain turns into an unbearable pain. And that, in turn, hampers our ability to effectively work with that pain and to heal the situation, to heal the source of the pain if possible. In a further irony, we can start to try and get spiritual about our experiences of pain and create problems that way as well it gets very tricky but this is an important point that we we have good research on this neuroscientifically speaking now the there there is good empirical research from hundreds and hundreds of years of spiritual practitioners working with their experience and verify that the gift of suffering is a heightened awareness that becomes healing In the scientific context, in one of the experiments, scientists took untrained participants and exposed them to pain. And what they found was that the perceptual centers in the brains of those those participants got less active. Perception gets less active, whereas the pain and suffering centers got more active what that means is that they were perceiving less clearly once that pain came in and they were suffering a lot for it. Now on the other side, the trained participants, people with meditation training and practice, exposed to the same pain, their perceptual centers got more active and their pain and suffering centers got less active. So greater clarity of perception An awakening awareness and as a consequence medicine that reduced the suffering they weren't suffering from this experience that they were very clearly perceiving now cohen actually found something very similar in her own experience she didn't need to consult the neuroscience again she was a participant in a long tradition of turning toward of Refining awareness and perception and analyzing experience to understand what the true nature of mind is what the true nature of experience is and to release Skillfulness in life. So that's what we're looking at Now here's where it started She tells us that she lived half a block from the San Francisco Zen Center Now by the time she made it from her home to the stairway that led up to the actual entrance of the Zen Center She was sometimes in so much pain that she could do nothing more than pause for a few minutes, cry, and turn and go back home. The very ground had become part of her sickness. Stepping on the ground gave her so much pain that the walk to that stairway left her totally drained and she just couldn't go up the stairs to the entrance after all that struggle to arrive. At those stairs. But one day, one day she asked, "Why, why this pain? Where was it coming from, and what was it really? Not as an, as an idea, but as an experience. When we are feeling pain, we feel so certain that we know what it is. And I've seen this in trying to help people in pain. Sometimes they are so sure that they don't want to look at it." That they know what it is and that looking at it will just be worse so there's a kind of act of courage that we need a spiritual courageousness and a trust in ourselves our trust in our capacity to look that's part of what compassion training builds in us is a trust in our deep and profound capacity to turn towards something difficult and find that it's workable after all so you're not alone If that's your experience of suffering and we all know that reactivity what Cohen did was she turned her attention to the act of walking and this is remarkable she noticed that she wasn't really walking this is a subtle point see if you can follow this she was doing her idea of walking rather than just walking and that idea was like a clump of weeds separating her from the garden of actual experience. As she turned her attention gently and opening to that clump, she began to see through it. She began to consume those weeds as medicine. Her experience of walking changed. The way she was walking changed just from sheer awareness. And she found her stamina beginning to increase immediately. She never again had to turn back from those stairs, and thus the sickness became medicine, and it had more healing to offer. She began to notice other clumps of weeds growing in her garden. By turning our attention to these weeds they can become herbs of healing now I'm saying weeds because that's that's the way we're treating it again remember the untrained subjects when the pain experience came they shut their perception down because that pain was like a weed they didn't want to see that they wanted to try to eliminate it from their garden of their experience but there it was when we turn toward what seems like a weed what seems like something unwanted in the garden of experience it transforms into medicine and then we find ourselves standing in a garden of even more vitalizing more enriched and nuanced experience the nuances are places where we can touch our lives with even greater intimacy body to body these are the places where we smell the fragrance of non-doing, taste the joy of awareness and presence, the wonder of spontaneous creativity. It's a place where we express what we truly are. Now, Cohen illustrates this difference between the idea of an experience and the experience ex- itself, and gives us a little sense of the fragrance of non-doing in a a description she gives about arthritis workshops. She got so good at working with her experience, so skillful that she went from being in serious need of other people's help just to get through the day. Sometimes she couldn't brush her own hair. and, And we just told the story of how she couldn't get up a stairway. She really had difficulty functioning. And she went from that being so skillful in her functioning that she was teaching arthritis workshops helping other people to become liberated in their lives and she said she would bring out carrots and a cutting board and immediately in the body and mind and heart and world of the people present in those workshops there was a reaction the sight of those carrots and that cutting board immediately provoked the idea of carrot cutting the idea of carrot cutting that most of us do instead of just cutting carrots instead of the non doing of carrot cutting and notice what we've got here these people in the workshops they knew they knew in their bones and we can say that literally they knew in their bones that their arthritis prevented them from cutting carrots they couldn't do it anymore. And that is just the point. Our lives cannot be done. No activity in our lives can be done without consequences. And Cohen writes, quote, When you actually hold the knife in your hands, feeling its wooden handle and sharp, solid blade, and you touch the vulnerable flesh of the carrots on the cutting board. Your wrist goes up and down, up and down, and the orange cylinders begin to pile up on the board, and you realize, I can cut carrots. Tears come to people's eyes. End quote. Let's savor that insight again. Our lives cannot be done, but they can be non done. And when we non do, we leave nothing undone that we need to take care of. It's Lao Tzu's favorite, fa- famous uh, line. I said, that was a Freudian slip. Why did I say favorite? Because it's one of my favorite lines from Lao Tzu. Wu wei er wu pu wei. By means of non doing, nothing is left undone. Now, Cohen goes on to examine the many facets of attachment as it relates to health and success and skill. And we're talking here about spiritual attachment, not attachment in the psychological sense, which I think still needs to be properly interfaced with attachment in the spiritual sense. It's an important psychological discovery in the West, especially for people who've developed in Western culture and who have all sorts of attachment issues. At least half the population has attachment issues. But spiritual attachment is is a slightly different, well, let's say a significantly different topic. Now, Cohen points out that most people are, as she puts it, temporarily abled. And what she means is that many people enjoy the blessing that for relatively long stretches of time, it might be years, even decades, their body gives them very few problems, relatively speaking. They can walk, run, dance, do yoga, climb sheer rock phases, catch thundering waves, the whole shebang. But all of this is impermanent and, in an important sense, it's illusory. If we look closely, for instance, we know that the greatest athletes suffer many injuries, as do musicians, dancers, plumbers, mothers. Everyone can experience an injury, anyone of any age. And some of these injuries keep them out of their professional work. In the case of professionals, keeps them out of their professional work for maybe days, weeks, months, could be years. Some professionals have to work with their injuries. Some professional athletes have to play with their injuries. Professional dancers might have to dance with their injuries. Construction workers, warehouse workers, mothers, fathers might have to push through with their injuries. On the professional side, some professionals find their career suddenly over because of an injury. Many people in professional sports, dance, even yoga, and many other fields are forced to retire from their careers or live a life in which they're constantly hiding their injury. And that can happen at a very young age And it could be an injury that they have to deal with for the rest of their lives. Now, what happens when a serious injury or illness comes into our lives is that we might enter a period of intense mental suffering. It could be a dark night of the soul. We just can't let go of what we had, that is, what we thought we had that feeling of health, that freedom from this unrelenting pain and the dread of illness that now hangs over us. We can't let go of that dream of our life as a dancer, an athlete, whatever it might have been. An injury to the body could take away the prospects for motherhood. It could take away the prospects for an acting career, a speaking career, a teaching career. But in a way, we find ourselves attached to something that never existed in the first place. In some cases, we never really got intimate with our own bodies and our own experience of life, even if we apparently had a very embodied kind of career. We might have been a dancer, we might have been an athlete. You might think that we were very intimate with our bodies in some ways, maybe so, maybe clearly so. But at another level, our body was mainly a tool, a servant. Sometimes we found it a stubborn one, other times a willing or even impressive one. And our life as a whole was a means to an end. And we have some evidence Here, too, compared to a completely naive person off the street, a dancer might have a lot more body sensitivity, a lot more internal awareness. But an experienced meditator often has even more than a dancer. And they have a very different relationship to their life. But in any case, we might find ourselves in a place where we grieve for our body, grieve for this end, this goal we dreamed of. We eulogize the body and even eulogize our life as a medicine that has become a sickness. All this is fairly normal in our culture. But with all of that, Cohen invites us to do something else. To quote, see our present bodies as real and our current lives as demanding all the creativity and energy we can summon when we do this cohen suggests and that was the end of the quote but when we do this cohen suggests the sickness becomes medicine cohen details the nature of this duality between sickness and medicine It's a deeply rooted and resistant duality supported by our self-centeredness or our ego and its attachments. It creates a lot of stumbling blocks in our maturation as human beings. Cohen admits that, quote, it's true that you can use mindfulness practice to achieve your health goals. You may even get rid of your disease or injury. But if you practice mainly to get rid of your suffering or restore an ailing body to function, rather than to express your life and your nature, it is a very narrow and vulnerable achievement. A goal-oriented practice cannot permeate deeply enough we must penetrate our anguish and pain so thoroughly that illness and health lose their distinction, allowing us to just live our lives. End quote. That really cuts to the bone. Consider what she's asking, what she's inviting us to contemplate can stop us in our tracks, to cut through our anguish and suffering so thoroughly that illness and health lose their distinction and we live every moment as a full expression of what we are, a full expression of wisdom, love, and beauty, a full and perfect expression of the mystery and magic of life. Remember good old Yun-men? He had a famous saying, which was part of another spiritual common law case. He said, every day is a good day. And remember, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life because of an injury that led to a crucial spiritual breakthrough. Was he healed? Did the injury heal if he had a limp? Was he in chronic pain? Should we consider him healed if he experienced chronic pain every day? Should we consider him healed if he really did experience every day as a good day? Not some happy-go-lucky stuff. You know, there's a lot of that in our culture, too much of it. We're talking about someone with a profound level of spiritual maturation and insight. A truly wise, loving, and beautiful human being. And of course, we're all beautiful, in our way but we're talking about the realization of the fuller promises of our spiritual religious and philosophical traditions not a platitude I mean, this is challenging stuff is what i'm trying to get at it's okay to admit that if the deepest healing can only occur when we let go of our agendas well, Wow, how do we effectively approach the work of healing or any orientation of success in our life? The spirit of that question applies to the whole of our life because we approach so many things with an agenda. And that includes our careers, our romantic partners, our hobbies, our horses and other non-human companions the ecological catastrophes we face, the political tragedies that we face, the social problems, and certainly our spiritual practice. On the path of love wisdom, we may seek enlightenment, knowledge, self-confidence, courage, skill, salvation, and certainly healing of various kinds. I mean, for the most part, People turn to spiritual practice precisely because of suffering. Clients come to me with all manner of suffering, from challenges in their work life to personal demons, relationship issues, and more. The sickness might seem to be mainly psychological or spiritual, but anyone with severe enough psychological or spiritual ailments or injuries knows that they can hurt as much as the supposedly strictly physical ones. And, again, the physical ailments are often bound up with spiritual and phil- philosophical, psychological issues. And in the end, mind and body are not two things. Now, many people turn to something called the Alexander Technique because of pain or injury. And part of my training as a philosopher includes having become a teacher of the Alexander Technique. This is a major commitment. It's like getting a master's degree. It takes three years of full-time study Uh, There are certain styles of training that don't do it that way, but the traditional training, that's what it takes because you have to put in a lot of time. And it also takes a lot of continued training after that because it's a highly skilled profession. Now, the pain that my clients would experience whenever I was working sort of more overtly in that modality whether and this is true even today clients whether it's a physical psychological spiritual pain however they might characterize it the thing that I'm trying to get at is that that pain often becomes an obstacle and the path to healing to insight to skill success the path becomes materialistic the path to transformation insight inspiration maturity It becomes materialistic because the pain becomes an obstacle i'm trying to get at something that might be a a little subtle maybe i can confess some of my youthful ignorance and that might help illustrate this point so when i was younger i seemingly chose not to specialize in people with pain like as a kind of deliberate decision at the time the younger me couldn't easily imagine how alexander technique teachers would deal with this because The best thing about the Alexander taking, one of the core things about it, is that it teaches non doing, which is a core spiritual skill. You find it in almost every wisdom tradition. It's there in one way or another, I would say, in every major tradition the world over. And people in pain want to be free from pain. When someone has a serious health problem that other modalities have not resolved, They sometimes go to teachers of the Alexander Technique wanting the Alexander Technique to be the thing that helps them where other modalities have failed. And I wasn't drawn to that situation. As a philosopher, I of course had a commitment to help heal suffering. But looking at a larger cultural level, I found myself attracted to focus on high performance in order to demonstrate that wisdom is what works, I felt drawn to to serving clients who were somehow pushing the envelope rather than clients who had lost functioning due to pain or injury. So there's, there's a difference, you know? You could have just a run of the mill person who's just working a work a day job and they have a severe back problem. And you could help heal that suffering and that's fantastic. Or you could work with a dancer who's just already at the top of her game and show how love wisdom, how the principles of love wisdom can take that to an even higher level. How what we think of as success in this culture isn't success according to the spiritual traditions and that that matters. That if we put the spiritual sense of success first, then all the other success that we get is built on the right kind of foundation, a foundation of wisdom, love, and beauty. And that will change the culture it's kind of one aspect of how i was looking at it at the time and it's still true i mean that's still there's still a socratic sense of how we go about pursuing success and that socratic or B- buddha had the same view confucius all the spiritual traditions kind of agree our notion of success in the dominant culture is not the spiritual understanding of success and if you want to any kind of success, you start with the spiritual stuff first, make that the grounding, and you grow from there. Now, if somebody already happens to be conventionally successful, I can still come and work with them and show them very clearly. They're so sensitive to the ways spiritual principles can take them up yet another notch or go to places they never thought possible. And that just had an interest for me. But again, love wisdom or philosophy... Has always been a kind of therapy. And I'm a philosopher, first and foremost. Love wisdom has always had an essentially healing heart. Its essence is care. And as Epicurus put it in one of my favorite lines from any philosopher, vain is the word of the philosopher that heals no suffering. And we only have fragments from him, but he reads very much like a Western Buddha. You can sense the sageliness in this philosopher. Love wisdom has to do with suffering and liberation from suffering, and it has to do with just living a skillful life, living skillfully, gracefully, and succeeding even in the face of difficulty, grave difficulty. So technically speaking, philosophy is therapy for the soul. It's not physical therapy, and it's not psychotherapy as we understand those things today, The FDA is not likely to approve philosophy as a way to heal injuries, relieve pain, or diagnose or cure disease. So we can put an FDA disclaimer on all of these contemplations. However, there's a twist. Because people who reorient their lives and take up a philosophical or spiritual practice often experience a correlation between their practice of philosophy and their health goals, especially big healing health goals. Places where every other modality has failed, we can find a correlation between a spiritual or philosophical turn, a real turn in their life, and somehow healing something that didn't look like it could be healed. Now, we're talking about a correlation. We don't know all the causes from our dominant paradigm. But I'm thinking as an example of Kelly Turner's research. And I'll probably mention this in other contemplations. Maybe I already have. But Kelly Turner went to the IONS database. That's the Institute of Noetic Sciences that was founded by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. They keep a database of remissions of terminal illness. And she wanted to know, is there anything that, that these cases have in common? You know, because from the medical standpoint, what, what you had was a situation where a person was told there is nothing conventional medicine can do for you, we're sorry, this is terminal, not, no treatment that we can give you, or they were given the only treatment available and they still weren't getting better, and so then we're told, we're sorry, it's not working, the only treatment option we have, so it looks like this is it. And these people all healed might have been cancer, might have been other things, but I think Turner's research focused in particular on cancer. But what she found was that there there, there were um, consistent factors across these cases. She found a set of factors that a lot of these cases held in common. And one of the factors that was turning up again and again was a spiritual or philosophical reorientation that these people essentially had a major spiritual turn It was as if that illness was a call to spiritual awakening, to philosophical awakening, and they began to practice their lives. And we don't just have that, but we have lots of other research on the positive health effects of living a philosophical or spiritual life, especially one that has concrete practices and clear, critical, discerning thinking. And so what I'm saying is this becomes an incredibly tricky situation because if you look at some of the data... It's natural to understand that people are going to start thinking that the Alexander technique or philosophy or spirituality might be able to help them deal with their arthritis, their fibromyalgia, their cancer, maybe will help them cancel their back surgery, recover from a car accident, deal with anxiety, depression, stress, relationship issues. They're starting to wonder if this could really be something important for them, and likely it is. But it's a lot of pressure for a teacher of non-doing. If you're committed to non-doing, which is a core skill of wisdom-based coaching and of the Alexander Technique, again, that's why I brought them together, then you're facing this temptation that the student is often begging. The client is often demanding that something be done. They really want something to be done. And again, it doesn't matter if it relates to physical injury or illness or something in their career, relationships, whatever their agendas and life goals are. We have an agenda-driven mindset. It's a style of consciousness. And that style of consciousness creates our problems in the first place. And so now what we think is we're going to put our healing on the agenda. We're going to put our relationships on the agenda. And we're not seeing that agendas create problems. Naturally, anybody who feels compassion wants to help when someone's suffering. But then what comes is a crisis of faith, so to speak, a crisis of faith in the efficacy of non-doing, in the efficacy of wisdom, compassion, and beauty. And that crisis might come in the teacher, might come in the client or student, it might come in both. Our long-practiced habits of doing our practice of manipulation and control, all of that gets provoked. And all the stories of the ego play themselves out loud. Now, all of this was mainly in the back of my mind back then when I was working as an Alexander Technique teacher primarily. And again, I just to make this clear, I'm I'm not an Alexander Technique teacher anymore, in that I would not put a shingle out that said that. I still incorporate the most important things from it. But there are a lot of things that too many Alexander Technique teachers are missing. The, 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 the essence is the love wisdom, and that's why I studied, became a teacher of the Alexander Technique, is to get in touch with the places that it interfaced with and overlapped with the wisdom traditions. At any rate, like a lot of people, I chose my areas of specialization by following my bliss and my sadness. That's what we do. The grief and praise that feeling of bliss and those feelings of tenderness, the places where we're raw, you know, where the wound is the gift. And since for me, those things weren't directly connected to chronic pain, I kind of didn't think of specializing in that way as a good thing for me at the time. Now the younger me figured it would be nice to move people further and further toward optimal functioning, you know, to go into real spaces of sanity, And real fields of success transformation insight inspiration rather than dealing with a situation of what we could naively call impaired functioning right now so there is the problem because there's an absurdity in that kind of naive view you know I'm trying to look at the places where I wasn't thinking clearly now today I have lots of clients with all sorts of pain and I welcome it I also have Clients who are functioning, say, physically speaking, quite quite normally, or maybe don't have a lot of um, anxiety, depression, or anything very severe psychologically. But one of the points to recognize is that we we have so much healing to do in this culture, in the dominant culture especially. Our ecological reality calls us to see the necessity of healing, calls us to see the wounds around us. And calls us to turn toward those sore places inside ourselves and outside of ourselves and to see how the the two are not separated we're being called to turn toward our wounds and the wounds of the world you know we made those wounds in the world and so they are our wounds too or our ancestors did and we have to take responsibility we might be the colonizers and we say look i didn't do it hey you're in the dominant culture, that's your lineage, that's your karma. It's unfortunate. It's no different than, than, than anything that might be with you physically. You say, well, yeah, I have a congenital heart dis- uh, defect. Well, you can't just say, well, hey, I didn't create that, my ancestors did. It's not my problem. It's your heart now. This is your river now. This is your forest. You live here. And we're guests. In other people's land. So we have to turn toward these sore places inside ourselves and outside of ourselves and again seeing the non-duality. Our ecological reality makes it clear that our whole culture and our habitual style of consciousness is the thing that's impaired. So the people I used to see as functioning at a high level were themselves deeply impaired by larger ecologies of mind in the, in the culture itself. And of course, I recognize that philosophically, but here I'm just showing the, the need for real discernment. You know, That's what I was trying to reveal, but the thing is so interwoven. Maybe we could put it this way, that the deeper philosophical truth, the deeper wisdom that we're trying to touch here, is that if we are what we are at every moment, we are functioning at our best. That's not necessarily the right way to put it, but there is a kind of completeness, a kind of perfection, presencing as each moment. There is just functioning, going on, at times seemingly healthy, at times seemingly injured, or aging, or dying. Now there's actually an Alexander Technique example of this. And it comes from one of the great prodigies of the Alexander Technique. And if you don't know about the Alexander Technique, I still firmly believe in it. If if you have Alexander Technique teachers near you and you have the certain right kind of match up with, with what they might be able to do for you, especially if you are, if you are a high performer or if you have injuries, it, it, I am still very committed to the scientific and philosophical cogency of the Alexander Technique. And so when I'm telling this story, I'm, t- I'm telling a story about someone I respect for their skill, at least within this, this general framework of the Alexander Technique. And Patrick McDonald was quite a prodigy and he was a renowned teacher of teachers. So he was not only a a teacher himself who had a large client base, but he also taught other teachers. And near the end of his life, he was literally bent out of shape because he had a chronic degenerative disorder. Now, a former student, I saw a a film of this because the, the, the film was made by one of my mentors in the Alexander Technique. And he filmed a gathering of Patrick McDonald's students who went to his home in England near the end of his life and one of the people in this film asked MacDonald when in his life did he think he had really been at his best and there stood MacDonald very very adult man stooped over his body weak with age and pain and he replied frankly and directly without pause that he was at his best right then and there now that is a response worthy of being placed in a book of spiritual common law now at the same time of course we can understand the metaphor of optimal functioning you know, right it makes sense to say you know i have an injury i'm not functioning optimally relatively speaking we understand that but this Kind of spiritual common law story of McDonald reveals the truth of that metaphor as well You know we get in our own way and so we can't Function optimally not fully no matter what feats our body can perform optimal functioning is bigger than some sort of trick or technique or performance that we can do the former student asking MacDonald that question was not able to function optimally himself at that moment because the idea of optimal functioning was interfering with him. And what did he see? He saw an old man in front of him, a frail old man who couldn't possibly be at his best now, not looking like this, not being that age. No, his best had to be in the past with some more perfect body, with some younger body, younger mind. Our culture provokes us to seek a perfect body, a perfect mind, a perfect bank account, a perfect partner, a perfect job. All fantasy objects that we long to possess. There's nothing inherently physical about functioning optimally. That notion, optimal functioning, the notion of our body, even, like what what embodiment means, what the body is. There's a whole ideology of the body. And all of this has to do with abstract thinking, concepts, habits, reactions, judgments. And it's beautiful to work on those weeds. We can recognize that various kinds of injuries and illnesses manifest. That's what happens. We all age, we get sick, we eventually die. However, if physicians of the soul, like Buddha, Socrates, Jesus, Confucius, the peacemaker, if those physicians of the soul are correct, then people in general, and maybe we could say especially, people subject to what we can call conquest consciousness, the style of consciousness that characterizes U.S. culture, such people in general have a deeply ingrained habit of being unwell because as a general tendency they cut themselves off from their own true nature and the true nature of reality so they can't just be what they are moment to moment even that phrase be what you are moment to moment it's just a concept in this culture the diagnosis from our physicians of the soul, the soul doctors of our wisdom traditions from around the world, including wisdom traditions that have had contact with conquest consciousness and have had to respond to it, is that this style of consciousness in this culture is a style of consciousness that cuts itself off from its own true nature, cuts itself off from the nature of mind and the mind of nature. Cuts us off, in other words, from ecological realities, from spiritual realities. There's a basic kind of suffering that arises in conquest consciousness. I mean, the whole notion of salvation, just to point out one example, exists because we're not in tune with peace, love, healing, joy, deep trust and confidence in ourselves, and a sense of wonder, reverence, sacredness. Now, that's a basic problem. In addition to the fact that all of us will get sick, things will go wrong with our bodies, we will die. The body is impermanent. And this culture does so much to make us feel like something's wrong with us, to make us feel this basic sense of unworthiness, including an energy that drives us eventually to hating ourselves, hating our mind, hating our body. And we're hating a delusion, We don't have an intimate connection with our mind and body. We wouldn't know what it would be to hate it because the object of our hatred doesn't exist and the culture doesn't turn us toward that intimacy. Okay, now all that aside, what's the point is that people come to me with suffering of all kinds and many of those people explicitly or implicitly, consciously or unconsciously hope the work I can do will help them heal in some way help them succeed in some way help them arrive at a deeper experience of well-being a deeper experience of love and liberation insight and inspiration confidence success and again we could say it's the only reason they come to me what are the odds that someone is going to knock on the door of a philosopher and say gee i'm feeling fantastic everything in my life is perfect but i just got curious about what you do And I want to learn about it. That might happen. But usually in our culture, when someone says that they're just curious, it's a cover over. There's some kind of unconscious presence of suffering there. And anybody in our culture who's feeling so fantastic either should be a sage teaching us all or is somehow missing something. World-class performers may seem to come to me without the presence of significant or chronic pain But again, even in those circles pain is a major motivator and we're back again at that dichotomy You know many physically healthy people suffer a great deal from a pressure to perform to be the best To get just a little more of an edge to stay at the top to feel even more confident to look more poised to have more presence To be better leaders to make more money to innovate to expand their company or just to feel better about themselves I mean they may have so much struggle to accept themselves to allow themselves to experience love and worthiness they may feel such a contradiction between their values and their daily life especially in business or in law even in medicine so they may have skill in their domain of expertise but that may in fact be the source of their problem or they might have skill in their domain of expertise but be a mess in their family life in their romantic life in their friendships and spiritually they can just feel a hunger a lot of times material or worldly success simply brings out the more fundamental importance of the spiritual How that's all we ever wanted and how that is all that will ever satisfy us that the material can't do it and that it would be much better if we just had economic equality so that all of us could be at that place and grow spiritually together rather than distracting ourselves with this ridiculous material game that is not going to make anybody happy but buys a lot of people a lot of unnecessary misery We've set the culture up so that just to get to baseline, to pull ourselves out of gratuitous misery, we have to have a certain degree of material stability. I've seen trained warriors, you know, who might be able to face the deadliest combat situation with poise. And yet they might fall to pieces if they have to give a public talk, or if they have to confess how much they love someone. And that's really what we're talking about here. All of us have places where we, we know we will fall apart. We know where we are falling apart. Our life is falling apart at the seams. And any of us can fall apart when we turn toward the suffering of those we love, turn toward the suffering of the world, and try to hold space for that, try to hold space for those beings. In all of these cases, and in every client I've ever worked with, there is something in the person that drives them to do something. To find a way to get what they want. To solve their problem. And every other variation of human agenda that goes directly against the great wisdom traditions of the world. See, we often think that the problem is just, well, I had, I just had the wrong agenda. You know, I pursued wealth, that didn't work. Now I'm just going to pursue healing or I'm gonna pursue fixing but if the agenda having is the problem we have to shift more deeply than we thought that's what the wisdom traditions teach us traditions around the world They teach us that a deeper transformation is gonna be needed if we want to heal ourselves and help to heal the world help to heal this karmic burden we have from our ancestors and from the current structures of inequality, injustice, and all the rest. Oddly enough, it often takes a state of crisis to open us to real transformation and healing, to open us to actually letting go of our agenda and our doing way of life. Because if if we can stand our pain, we will often carry on especially if our patterns give any kind of success at all even if it's just monetary and material if we can find some success in those patterns it strengthens our sense of self aggrandizement and we feel a feeling of self-worth because of those apparent successes and this is A problem that goes back as as far back at least as civilization Socrates dealt with precisely this he went around to the supposedly successful people who had a sense of their self-importance and he asked them inquired to see if they had any wisdom whatsoever and he found that they didn't and he realized that that meant the culture was going to fall apart He realized that this was the the source of injustice in the culture, this lack of wisdom, and yet this sense. Well, I'm successful, so you see, I, 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 I feel good about it. I'm willing to stick with this. Meanwhile, the soul is calling us. The wounds of the world, the wounds of the psyche are calling us to attend, to take care of them, to take care of each other. We end up perpetuating the patterns we know No matter how much, they ultimately work against us and against others. When we begin to have pain we don't think we can handle or medicate, we might start looking for real help. And we might become more inclined to leap into the unknown. Now these kinds of of challenges can keep us caught in the duality of sickness and medicine. And so many of us, because of that, can remain materialistic. And this is especially true in a healing modality. The the healer or the coach or the teacher can remain caught in this dualism themselves. And the truth that I, I think we need to recognize every student and every healer, teacher, coach, whatever, it is in some sense caught in this duality. sort of broadly speaking you know it's just the way the culture is organized so it's not so easy to just say we're not stuck in it or to say well I'll just I don't look at it that way there are larger patterns in the ecology that are shaping the way we interact with each other and the very nature of love wisdom or philosophy is to begin to break through this to dispel it even if in a small way And that's the essence. Uh, It's part of the essence of wisdom-based coaching. I mean, you could say that that expresses the essence, but it's just one aspect of it. To grow from this challenge of being stuck in the duality of sickness and medicine and dealing with the larger wounds of the dominant culture, the client and the coach, teacher, psychotherapist, whoever it is, must confront yun men's question. Remember that question, what is the self? The whole cosmos is medicine. What is the self? Somehow we have to find a way to turn toward that question and begin to dispel the dualism and materialism. Of our culture's philosophies, and even of our very nice personal philosophies. You know, there's no such thing as a personal philosophy. But the way we take a personal orientation toward our philosophy of life ends up being spiritual materialism. So the student is both sickness and medicine for the healer, the teacher, the coach, the mentor, the doctor. And the same way is true the other direction. The teacher can be sickness and medicine for the student, the client, the patient. The teacher, doctor, mentor, coach can become sick with doing. Or that teacher, healer, coach, mentor can taste the medicine of awareness, acceptance, connection, non-doing. Deep trust. In a sense of sacredness and wonder. And again, the same goes for the student. The teacher can become the student's sickness as the student wonders, how can I ever do this by myself? What's the right way to do this? Why can't I get this? What is the teacher doing for me? Is this working? Am I getting better? What am I doing wrong? Am I ever going to really succeed? Will I ever be worthy Will I ever be loved? Will I ever stop feeling this fear and self-doubt? Will I ever escape my habits and find freedom? Cohen describes this dualism and materialism clearly. She says that when we are sick, and we should cast a wide net with that word, getting well becomes, quote, just another hindrance to us, just another robber of the time we have to live, just another idea that enslaves us, like enlightenment, End quote. That's some fairly sticky stuff. She isn't telling us to give up in a heap, you know, just puddle on the floor, I give up, I can't win. After all, her story is about how she went from, from being lo- incapable of walking to the Zen center, you know, or, or really needing people's help with basic tasks. Her story is about how she went from that to being highly functional, teaching workshops that help others become functional, to cut carrots when they were sure they couldn't cut them. Her story is about how to alleviate suffering. So here again, the weeds grow up around us obscuring our view. This is nuanced, maybe, in some ways. Maybe it's hard to sense these things, but we're so caught that they're subtle. The weeds are toxic and they intoxicate. We don't see the ways spiritual materialism pulls us into turning our path of spiritual growth, our path of healing, into just another problem for the world, another obstacle to really realizing who we are and fully appreciating and living our lives, knowing ourselves, knowing the true nature of ourselves and the true nature of reality. So among the intoxications and hallucinations is the illusion of progress. And Cohen specifically makes note of it. The illusion of progress. Wow, this is the dominant culture's favorite delusion. And that illusion is more than getting healthy. The very notion of progress goes all together with the whole of Western culture, and it goes all together with our desire to be right, our desire to know, our desire to manipulate and control, our desire to fulfill our agendas and get what's ours, to make ourselves comfortable, to get ground under our feet. Fear and desire provoke us. And as a result, we let go of the means, the path, we let go of the moment, we let go of our life here, now. It vanishes. We stand in the weeds of ideas, weeds as high as our whole body, our whole existence, our whole world. Our life vanishes in the weeds and only our ideas of life remain. Meanwhile, we're telling people how great our life is. It's an echo chamber of ideas. We're in weeds. We think it's great. It's lush. It's green everywhere. But all we can see are weeds. And we get awfully comfortable in those weeds, even if it hurts. And it's such an odd thing. We'd rather hold on to the pain because we think we know it. We think we know how to succeed at life. We think we know what we desire or what we should desire, what success would be, how to fix the world, how to fix the climate crisis, how to fix the politics. We think we know how to make ourselves happy. Despite all the spiritual traditions telling us that exactly that's it, we don't know how to make ourselves happy. And we're totally frightened of the unknown. Frightened of the joy we don't yet know, the love we don't yet know. And we'd rather hold on to the pain that we think we do know. Everything that's familiar, our familiar ideas, patterns, habits, reactions, as the pain builds, maybe by some act of grace, maybe by a decision, maybe we can decide and say, you know what, let this be the bottom of the barrel for me. Let this be enough. And we finally become more inclined to leap into the unknown. We'll hold on to our toenails if it's possible. We'll prevent that leap by any means. Often sounding perfectly rational to ourselves and to others. We might even have a platform where we're teaching how to get into this clump of weeds that we think is so fantastic. We think this is it. This is it. We, I've succeeded. Let me show you. And we're leading people into a clump of weeds. All students of love wisdom are sick with one thing. And I'm just another student of love wisdom. All of us are sick with one thing. No matter what we think our sickness is, we have it all wrong. This is so awful a truth that one can never speak it to one's clients or students, at least not without proper context. But in any case, it really has to be discovered, tasted directly. The depth of the discovery corresponds to the depth of transformation any student of love wisdom can realize. Let's think for a moment about illness. Can we really tell someone with MS that MS is not a sickness, not in the narrow sense, but it's just what the cosmos is doing right now? Can I tell you that your pain is not a good thing, but also not a bad thing? Do we have the strength to see with Rumi how, quote, a craftsman pulled a reed from the reed bed, cut holes in it, and called it a human being, quote. Can any of us let the music of life, the music of the mystery, fully come through us? Or will we fill up the reed of our being with the mud of our agendas, our ideas, our fear and self-doubt? Can we let the music come through us, not only when it's a joyful tune, but also when it becomes a tender agony, as Rumi puts it? Can we see that our only sickness is not letting ourselves be the song of the cosmos, the song playing at each particular moment, as each particular moment? Our only sickness is not letting ourselves be the essence of the music of mystery that is also the great silence of the soul. A music that's ultimately bliss even when it's pain. Cohen gets at this. She experienced this directly. This is not just some Highfalutin nonsense, you know, these are the spiritual traditions talking to us directly about how to heal our lives how to deal with the most Painful and difficult things how to deal with our arthritis and how to deal with ecological collapse How to deal with conquest consciousness and how to deal with economic inequality. It is the same thing. These traditions Are there because they work wisdom is what works and so this is coming from someone with At the point of writing this essay, almost two decades of chronic illness. And she writes, quote, Even if your body is weak or painful, it's still your home. It's how you're manifesting this life, end quote. And Rumi might point out that that home is the place where the guest will enter, where the beloved will enter, the place where sacredness reveals itself the place where our true nature becomes clear, the place where we discover the interwovenness of all things, the place where we resolve all our spiritual doubts. Keep in mind, when she says it's your home and she says body, we should remember that the word ecology is the study of home. Eco, oikos, home. What we call body is not separated from the world. We are talking about something profound, cosmic, ecological, real, practical, pragmatic. Instead of treating our home as holy, we, even unconsciously, because of conquest consciousness, it has us thinking of it as profane, problematic, pitiable, poor, something to struggle against, something that invades us, creates problems for us. Why do we impoverish ourselves? That's the real mystery of this culture, that it gets us to impoverish ourselves whether we have money in our pocket or not. As Rumi says, the guest who demands gold from us secretly slips it into our pocket. Instead of checking our pockets, we wring our hands over our poverty and our pockets are here, this home, this body and these larger ecologies that are also our home, all interwoven. Our true nature transcends the boundary of the skin. To say our body is our home means our ecologies are our home, that the mountains, rivers, forests and the great earth are our home and they are how we are manifesting the body of raven or wolf of honeybee or whale of flower or fern that's our body the cosmos itself is our body and our home why would we narrow ourselves to this impermanent localized abstraction that our culture has us calling the body why would we confine our state of true well being to such a small set of habits? Cohen writes quote, When we pluck wellness out of the void, illness always comes with it. End quote. All the ideas and ideals motivated by fear and craving just create problems. We constantly measure, compare, bemoan. We don't want to manifest this way or we want to grasp after and hold on to that way of manifesting. We imagine what we think we used to be. We imagine what we think someone else is. We judge what we think our own condition is and what someone else's condition is like. When do we have time to live when do we allow our liberation into larger ecologies of body and mind and heart and when do we allow our mutual liberation to set us all free mutual nourishment mutual illumination Cohen suggests that we can let go of our bodies what does that mean? Her essay is in a book on embodiment, on respecting the gifts of the body. It's a book written in particular from a feminine perspective. So important right now at this moment in this culture. And this is a book then about acknowledging that wisdom and compassion come through this human body. So what could she mean by letting go of our bodies spiritually speaking it has to do with letting go of all our ideas about the body because again the body in the dominant culture is now an epicenter of spiritual materialism notions about body and embodiment are creating problems for us we have all sorts of spiritual materialism related to the body we have political notions, psychological notions, medical and economic notions. Embodiment as an idea meant for liberation has become part of the pattern of insanity. We see this so many intellectuals, activists working on notions of embodiment and how much liberation are we getting from it, really? What really happens with the body in this culture and are our abstract ways of relating to it going to work or do we have to get back down to this deeper layer of love wisdom and back into the ecological realities, the wildness and the wonder? Could we turn instead to a practice, a practice, a practice of intimacy? As Cohen puts it, quote, your health habits can be more reliably based in daily practices which do not change with feelings about your body. You can decide how to best take care of your body, your life, and you can do it dispassionately." In other words, we can do it without attachment or agendas. Passion is fine, but craving, attachment, and conscious human purposes will only create trouble for us. We have to take direction from wisdom, love, and beauty, not from hopes, fears, confusions, agendas, and most importantly, momentary feelings, experiences. Momentary feelings of hopelessness, depression, anxiety... The whole community of life depends on how we care for what we call the body, and the mind, and the heart. And how we care for our body extends into the living, loving world, the landscapes and communities alive and a love with vitality and potential. Birds take care of their feathers, Bears take care of their fur without getting on a self help program. They do it as part of taking care of the whole world. I mean, imagine it every being out there, their activity of care makes our world possible. What does the human activity make possible? Our human activity makes possible large scale degradation of ecologies, mass extinction economic inequality and the perpetuation of a vast array of injustices and aggressions when beaver does his work, when hummingbird does her work, when honeybee does her work, when raven and wolf do their work, when the redwoods do their work, their work makes life possible for all of us they take care of their bodies and in the process they take care of all of us somehow we have to get back in touch with that spirit of reverence that spirit of gratitude and reciprocation of course at times we just don't feel like taking care of ourselves that's part of the issue right sometimes our culture just makes us feel like it's not going to make a difference we're not worthy anyway And then we get into all sorts of spiritual materialisms in that kind of storm. You know, it's its own thing. It creates its own spiritual materialism. I saw someone who was uh, doing a self-care day. And what was their self-care day? Well, they were going to drink champagne all day rather than hard liquor. Students of love wisdom have all sorts of reasons why they can't follow its principles which are simply the principles of living a graceful, dignified human life, a life of joy and love in a living, loving world. Usually we have the best reasons for not practicing at precisely those times in our lives we most need to practice. The principles of love wisdom are not faith-based, they're not opinion-based, they're not philosophical in some abstract sense they are scientific and spiritual they have to do with how human beings function in other words they have to do with how ecology functions with how ecologies of mind body heart and soul function they have to do with wisdom and compassion with love and beauty and with a sense of skillful realistic living taking care of ourselves, living life in accord with our true nature, living in attunement with nature's ecologies, living in attunement with the cosmos, with the divine, whatever you want to call it, is the most wise, loving, and beautiful choice. Now, Cohen gets at this from several angles, but she sums it up in a statement that captures the heart of the healing potential of Philosophical and spiritual practice. She writes, Healing yourself is living your life. It is not a preparation for anything else. That's it. Healing ourselves is living our lives, living our lives. We're talking about a spiritual achievement. Again, not a platitude, it's easy to say. I mean, we we can just pick our favorite living villain today and say, well, he's just living his life. We might say that of the president. Look at him. He's just living his life. Is he? So there's something profound that's being asked here. You know, Cohen is not writing platitudes. And if we take it seriously, we can sense why people notice a correlation between reorienting their life, spiritually and philosophically, on the one hand, and experiencing greater health, healing, even a total remission on the other. Love wisdom is an education, an unlearning, unlearning of the ideas that interfere with living our lives and enjoying our basic goodness, which includes our capacity for endogenous healing. It's a fancy word for healing that happens from within. We consume the weeds that encumber our basic goodness, and they become medicine. Flowers begin to grow because the soil is healthy. The gardener doesn't do anything to the flower. There was no healing, just living, functioning being the music and the mystery of the moment. Well, we've in a way arrived back at our starting point. We began by saying that Cohen's path for alleviating suffering is the very path of love wisdom. This point can now be clearly summarized by Cohen herself. She writes, Intimacy with our activity and the objects around us, connects us deeply to our lives. This connection to the earth, our bodies, our sense impressions, our creative energies, our feelings, other people, is the only way I know of to alleviate suffering. End quote. we could print that out with ever so slight editing and think of it as a slogan that crystallizes the nature of love wisdom. Love wisdom is about cultivating intimacy with our own life, intimacy with the sentience in every direction, taking life in our arms and dancing with it like a lover, a friend, a goddess, a devil. Taking life in our arms and letting life take us in its arms. Feeling the creative energy of life flowing through us. Who is this friend we embrace? Is it life or is it us? Life already has us in its arms right now. It already dances with us as if we were a lover, a friend, an angel, an insect. We can stop doing and start dancing. We can be the voice box of the earth and stars, the music and poetry of the moment, the body and mind of life itself. It's the only way I know of to live a human life. But how? How do we overcome the sickness that keeps us from an intimate relationship with our own life? How do we awaken our eco-sensual awareness? The eco-sensual awareness that is the basic nature of our mind and our world. That quote points in an intellectual way toward the relationship between the work of love wisdom and Yun-men's spiritual common law case. The six core skills of love wisdom constitute the path and the realization. They are what we need to practice in order to receive the medicine of the whole cosmos. And they are what we are and always have been once that medicine is received that's it the core skills are skills because they are what we are they're not a thing that we do they're a thing that we let happen in through and as us they're the way we let wisdom love and beauty happen in through and as us they're the way we let the music and mystery of the moment play itself out in through and as us there is nothing but awareness Acceptance, connection, non-doing, deep trust, and great wonder. Now, I think it would take us too far afield. We've already contemplated a lot and taken a lot of time. It would take us too far to go into those skills, what those skills are. Suffice it to say the self cannot go to the medicine because that's a doing doing is carrying the self somewhere to realize the countless beings of life as the great philosopher Dogen makes clear that doesn't work instead the countless beings of life must be allowed to come to us to realize us because they are already in our soul and that happens in an active, engaged, non-doing way so that sickness and medicine subdue each other in non-obstruction. That subduing each other, that non-obstruction, is the interwovenness of what we conventionally refer to as sickness and medicine. It's the interwovenness of everything, including the union of opposites that Carl Jung wrote about, The fierce lion of the cosmos is also a gentle lamb. The hard, knotted self transforms into what it always was, a flexible reed. Does the cosmos kick now and then? Sure. Does the reed play songs of sadness? Yes. It never refuses a tune. It plays everything with the whole of itself. The mutuality here is essential. Sickness and medicine subdue each other. Sickness and medicine mutually correspond. Sickness and medicine mutually illuminate. Maybe we should pause and clarify this with slightly dangerous language. We already use this phrase all healing is endogenous let me repeat that all healing is endogenous that means all healing is self-healing life is a self-healing truth we may think that A certain person healed us or a medicine healed us or a medication or a self-help program but the healer and the medicine do nothing but remove blocks to our own natural healing or we could say they stimulate our own endogenous healing response that's why even surgery as the surgeon Ian Harris suggests Even surgery is at least sometimes nothing more than a placebo response. Isn't that remarkable? Dr. Harris, a surgeon, suggests that with many surgeries, the only reason we heal is that the surgery itself functioned, as he puts it, as the ultimate placebo. We would have healed anyway, but we couldn't let go of our block's to healing, we couldn't let go of them until somebody cut us open and the ego could finally step aside and our body could heal itself. Even if a surgery wouldn't qualify as a placebo in Dr. Harris's sense, our surgeon still depends on our body, mind, and larger ecologies to do the healing. The healing remains endogenous in a profound sense keep in mind the irony here since many scientific thinkers would see religion as the ultimate placebo indeed the placebo effect itself blurs the rigid boundaries between what we accept as science and what we insist on the basis of faith must be a matter of of magical thinking in the most pejorative sense. We need to get beyond this narrow faith in materialism and find out for ourselves the nature of healing. Spiritually speaking, we can see this endogenous healing response in the image of Jesus as healer. Jesus casts out demons which we can understand as blocks to our healing. Anything that obstructs our liberation we could refer to as a demon. That's the way it works in other traditions. Our wholeness, our holiness, gets blocked by these obstructions, these demons. Now those words all have the same root. Healing is wholeness and holiness. Let me say that again. Healing is wholeness and holiness. Jesus was able to heal because he and the divine are not two things. There is a wholeness there and he related to the wholeness in us. And I'm not saying this as a Christian. I'm saying this as a philosopher. So someone like Jesus could trigger our endogenous healing response because we ourselves are not cut off from the divine which is all-healing, all-holy. We and the divine are not two things, and thus we can relate to the divine and enter into the mutuality of attunement and atonement, healing and holiness. All self-regulation is co-regulation. The endogenous healing response in us is the healing of the world if we allow it. And the world very much needs our healing right now. There are mysteries here, including the fundamental mystery of the inherent sacredness of life, of love, of healing, of wholeness. Wholeness that never obstructs our uniqueness. In the end no amount of words will work here if you are listening to this as someone who has never tried some form of love wisdom practice then consider going and getting instructions getting some kind of initiation some kind of instruction even coaching if any of this makes sense even vaguely seek to verify it for yourself seek to enter into the mystery and mutuality of healing and wholeness. And for those who are already students, maybe very advanced, please keep practicing. There is more to learn, more to verify. And this is a world in need of our verification, our healing, our wholeness. There is a whole cosmos of medicine waiting and a living, loving world here that needs it. In closing, and we're finally there, I think. I just want to go to the end of Cohen's essay. Even though the key points have already been made, granted, the richness of her final thoughts, I think, is potentially as moving as anything else she wrote in the piece. Depends. You might find it that way. Some people, I think, might. She writes, quote, People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How, in the midst of this pain, this implacable slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. I can never give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. But I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. It seems to me that when we fall ill, we have an opportunity we may not have noticed when we were well to literally incorporate the wisdom of the Buddhas and to present it as our own body. That's the end of the quote. That despair she experienced, I think it's beautiful. I also think it's, it's important to say it's not necessary. You don't have to do that. And so much spiritual materialism will come into that. We can see, I have seen people who work through their healing process and insist that they have to go through that despair. I think that's an open question. In this culture, we might be more prone to despair than at other times. And maybe part of our healing work is to heal that so that we can just open, just begin to say, take me, I'm yours. And I think what I see in my clients is a progression where that period of despair gets gradually shorter. And they do find in at least some moments that they could just immediately open in a space that ordinarily would have shut them down completely. Even for a time. Again, it might be that the despair went from days to hours, then to minutes, maybe to seconds. The point is we don't have to beat ourselves up either way and we don't have to rationalize either way. We just keep Practicing and keep trying to be honest with ourselves, and surround ourselves with people who will also be honest with us. And so, I, I think I'd like to also bring in here Rumi. He just has this wonderful line in one of his poems. He writes, "Quote: Someone once asked a great master what Sufism was, and the master replied." The feeling of joy when sudden disappointment comes. I love those lines from Rumi because it's such a perfect definition of love wisdom in general. And it's like a whack on the side of the head, especially if we might be feeling that temptation to despair. Which again is perfectly fine, but imagine, wow, what if the essence is that joy comes right there, And we could even change it. We could say, well, it's the practice of joy in the face of sudden disappointment, recognizing that we don't have to be perfect. But, you know, Sophia must laugh as we so often turn ourselves into those monks from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, and they just whack themselves continually over and over. They whack themselves on the head. And maybe we experience that. We just have to keep whacking ourselves in the head with our own despair How many sudden disappointments do we have, do we experience each week? How many chances do we get to presence, wisdom, love, and beauty in the form of our very body, our very mind, our very heart, our very world, our very cosmos? How many moments of joy do we forget to savor and become intimate with? all we really have to see is that everything is rousing us to our true nature everything calling to us both the pains and the joys we don't have to despair but even if we find ourselves despairing we don't have to wait even one moment longer to return to ourselves to return ourselves to life and love to healing and wholeness to sacredness and wonder What do you think? What are the challenges or paradoxes of health, healing, or success that you have noticed in your life? To what degree is it possible to let go of our agendas so that we and the world can heal and be free in mutuality? In a profound way, again, not the slogans, not the platitudes, but the real transformations our world needs. If you have questions or reflections about today's contemplation or about health and healing in general or success and skill in general, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll try and address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.